0: السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته sorry just one second بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاه والسلام على امانه الاكملان على خير خلق الله اجمعين وعلى اله وصحبه ومن ساروا على سبيله ونهجه واستنبل بسنته واهتدى بهديه لا يوم الدين بَعْدٍ So welcome to another lesson of QP uh, and Inshallah ta'ala today we're going to continue with our discussion our tafsir of uh, Surah Al-Fajr uh, but also inshallah ta'ala towards the end of the class I have a few announcements to make a few things that we just some housekeeping that we need to do uh, just some reminders and some notices so we'll do that towards the end of the lesson uh, so last week we were discussing a number of verses of Surah Al-Fajr in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was speaking about the state of those people who, and if we, we cast our mind, minds back just as a quick recap over the Surah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after He mentioned the different nations that were destroyed despite their strength and their power and their might, Allah destroyed them in those verses that begin with Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi'ad. and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after mentioning their destruction and their ending, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke about the situation of people who in times of happiness or in times of ease and in times of joy, they turn to Allah and they show Him happiness and they show gratitude. But in times of difficulty, in times when, when provision is restricted, they become people who complain and they don't show that level of pleasure with Allah and His decree. And this is something which I think, especially in the situation that we're living in in our times, is very pertinent, I think, for many of us especially here in the west but maybe even across the world because of the events that are taking place in the world at the moment prices are rising whether it's oil prices or energy prices or food prices the cost of living generally is becoming higher and higher and higher and for those of us who can remember a few years back when things were a lot easier and things generally seem now looking back to be far easier than what they are now those were times that Allah gave to us of times of ease and times of relative felicity but always the dunya is like this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, وَتِلْكَ الْأَيّامُ نُدَاوِلُهَا بَيْنَ النَّاسِ These are days that we change over between people. Sometimes are easy and sometimes are difficult. Some days are better and some days are harder. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in each one of those situations, wants to see how we will respond. And the people of Iman, they turn to Allah in times of ease, just as they turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in times of difficulty. And they come to Allah Azza wa Jal in both of those situations in equal measure with hope and fear and trust and love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The cost of living that we're seeing now, this shows the people who during the times of ease were perhaps happy to praise Allah Azza wa and say, Rabbi Akraman, my Lord has honored me. But in these times when times are more difficult, when the cost of living rises, when people now start to struggle, they are the same people who then turn back and they say, Rabbi Ahanan, my Lord has humiliated me. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the, in the verses that we mentioned last week, we were speaking about those verses in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the reality of the Quraysh and those people who despite Allah Azza wa Jalla giving them provisions or giving them, uh, giving them strength and giving them power and giving them certain blessings that Allah Azza wa Jalla bestowed upon them, their response to this was what? Their response was Kalla bella That despite what Allah Azza wa Jalla has given to them, they're not good towards the orphan. And this is because the people of Quraysh, especially Arabs in general, used to claim to have certain attributes and certain characteristics and they were known for certain things. But the irony of their society was that the good that they had or the welcome that they gave or the honor that they gave to their guests and so on was usually restricted to the people that were either related to them, so their kin to them, their blood relatives, their family, or they were people that they would honor because of their station, because of their wealth, because of their position in their societies. But when it came to the weak, and when it came to the poor, and when it came to the needy and the orphans, those were people that were completely uh, rejected, they were completely neglected by the Quraysh by the Arabs in general. And that is the irony of their society. They claimed on one hand to have so much good in terms of their mannerisms, and in terms of their positions, but at the same time, they were people who were also uh, extremely evil when it came to those who they considered to be weak, and those who considered to be below them, in station and in honor, and so on and so forth. And so, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is highlighting this here that Allah azza wa honored you and bestowed upon you certain blessings like wealth and position and strength. And what do you do? You don't honor the yateen. And we know, <coughs> excuse me, you, we know from a number of the of different verses in the Quran, and a number of them we ourselves have, alhamdulillah ta'ala, we have been able to make tafsir of in the verses in the surahs that we've previously covered. One of the most common ways in which Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la points out and highlights this irony in the, in the Arab society was through their uh, the, the treatment of the orphans. The uh, team is often mentioned. And by the way, this isn't to say that this was only exclusive to the Arabs, that the Arabs were like this, but every other society or civilization or people were much better or greater. No, you find this across Europe, you find this across much of the world in those different civilizations. You look at the Greeks, you look at the Romans, you look at the Egyptians before them. You often find this amongst all of those people. So Allah in the verses that we took last week spoke about how they don't honor the team. وَلَا عَلَىٰ الْمِسْكِينَ And how they don't encourage one another to feed the poor. And we mentioned that there are two ways of understanding that verse. Some of the scholars said that they don't feed them themselves. Others said that it means that they don't uh, encourage feeding others as well. And that's because some of them read تَحَادُّونَ and some of them read تَحَادُّونَ in the two or three different Qur'at that we mentioned last week. And Allah then goes on to say, and they devour the inheritance of those people as well. And often again, they were people who were poor, people who were weak, people who were orphans. It was usually the children and the women that their rights would be taken and no rights would be afforded to them. So that's where we ended last week. Uh, and we now go on to verse number 20 of the surah. In which Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la is still continuing, still speaking about the state of those people. So Allah Azzurajal mentioned the way that they treat the orphans, the way that they treat the poor and the needy, the way that they devour inheritance. What does all of that point to? What does it all show? Those three traits, what is the common denominator between them? What is the pattern that is emerging? Verse number 20, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la says, And you love wealth with a great passion. Uh, looking at some of the other translations here, pretty much the same. Sahih International and you love wealth with immense love. Mufti Taqi, you love wealth and excessive love. Uh, And Mohsin Khan and you love wealth with much love. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is highlighting the reasoning as to why all of the past three verses that we just covered last week, all of those three verses, what is it that it's referring to? It's referring to their love of the dunya, their love of materialism. The love that the Quraysh had for their wealth, because as we've mentioned a number of times before, people who don't believe in Allah Azza wa and in resurrection and Yom Al qiyamah often see materialistic things as a sign of honor and as a sign of pleasure and as a sign of success. This verse, also as we uh, covered last week and the uh, last week in the two or three verses that we covered last week, it is read in two different ways. It is read with the Ta, to speak to someone, address someone in the in the first person, and with the Ya in addressing someone who isn't present, who is absent. So you have the reading of al-mala, which is the reading of the majority of the Qur'an and then you have the reading of the ya, which is the reading of Abu Amr al-Basri and Ya'qub uh, al-Hadrami and that is with the وَيُحِبُّونَ al and we said one is speaking directly and one is referring to someone in their absence and both of them have their position here. And so it's either referring to someone that you are speaking to directly, so maybe the Quraysh and others, but at the same time it's also referring to others who were similar to the Quraysh from the nations of the past and so on and so forth. The word uh, mal, as we've said before, often it is is translated as, as being wealth or money, and that is like the colloquial uh, usage of this word now in our time in, in, in normal everyday parlance, in normal Arabic uh, conversation. The word man has kind of become restricted to wealth in terms of money. But actually wealth as we know in, in, in Arabic in, in the essence of the word is, is far more general. It is far more comprehensive and so it includes anything which has value. So it would include land and it would include property and it would include you know in our time cars and it would include for example uh, if people had had crops that they were sending and all of those things that people considered to be materialistic value or of materialistic value would become under the word mal and that's because we know that the arabs not all of them were people who traded in gold and silver often they traded in cattle and livestock or they traded in crops and agriculture and so you understand therefore that the Arabs were people who had different types of amwal, different types of, of wealth. Mal is a comprehensive term. Includes all of those people because the word mal includes every type of wealth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that these people love it hubban jammah. And the word jammah as Ibn Abbas radiyallahu uh, ma said in his tafsir, he said that it's re- oh, in the tafsir that is narrated from him, he said that the word jammah means shadeedah. It means an excessive or extremely passionate, deep love. And we know that the Prophet Wasallam, as we mentioned, uh, I think last week we hinted at this, the Prophet Wasallam mentioned to us the fact that that uh, that uh, wealth is one of the trials of this ummah. It is one of the trials that the Prophet feared for this ummah. Because the Prophet said in a number of hadith with slightly different wordings, that it is not poverty that I fear for you or something else that I fear for you, but rather my fear for you is that the dunya will become open for you, that this world will present itself to you with all of its trappings and luxury and its, and its materialistic wealth, and then you will covet it as those who came before you coveted it, and you will compete for it as they competed for it before you, and therefore it will destroy you, as it also destroyed those who came before you and that's because wealth is something once you get that it's love and and part of it is a natural love right allah azza wa jalla has placed natural types of inclinations within us from them is the inclination to wealth that doesn't mean as we've mentioned a number of times before that wealth is evil in and of itself it is the way that we approach that wealth we use that wealth we attain that wealth that is what makes it pure or what it makes it impure what makes it halal or haram what makes it good or what makes it evil However, the natural need to have wealth and then the things that it opens up for you, the doors that it opens up for you, means that people therefore are extremely attached to wealth in all of its different forms. So, when uh, in the hadith of the Prophet the famous hadith that we all know, that if the child of Adam were to be given a valley of gold, then they wouldn't be happy until they had a second valley. And if they had a second valley, then they wouldn't be content until they had the third valley. They had the third valley and nothing will satisfy the child of Adam except for the dust of the ground, meaning until they die and dust is placed upon them. And that shows that this is a natural thing that people covet, but also part of the coveting of wealth is that you never have enough. Because as the Prophet told us, وسلم, true wealth or true richness is not having a great deal or a great amount, but true richness is contentment of the heart. It is the contentment of the heart that you have. Otherwise, you always want more. And always want more. And when you covet that wealth, or you're afraid of that wealth, you will find people like the Quraysh and other people who had a great deal of wealth. And they felt that if they were to give some of that wealth to the poor and the needy and the orphans, it would impoverish them. It would make them poor, even though they would only be giving a certain percentage of wealth. Just as unfortunately nowadays times today, we find many Muslims not giving zakah. Why don't you give zakah? It's only 2.5% of all of the wealth that you possess. 2.5% is hardly anything when you compare it to, for example, how much tax we have to pay, right? For those of us that are living in countries where we have to pay tax and we have to pay uh, certain types of other other government levies on our on our income and so on, we pay far more. Which country in the world gives you a 2.5% uh, tax on your income, right? It's rare. Normally it's 10%, 15%, 20%, 30%, 40%. It's, it's a great amount of the wealth that you earn. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't ask for that much. He asks for 2.5% and it's to give and to benefit directly the people that you see, the people that you can actually see. And one of the beauties of the of the pillar of Islam that is zakah is because sometimes when you give this this amount at a macro level or when you give it to, for example, someone uh, you know in, in a position that is far removed from you, their distribution of it may not necessarily be the same as your distribution of it in your own community and amongst your family. So for example, I know that my relative is poor and and, and, and is eligible for zakah. I know that there are people in my neighborhood that are eligible for zakah. I know that there are people in my community, single mothers or orphans or other people who are in extreme financial difficulty, they are eligible for zakah. For me to go and give it to them directly also shows, therefore, directly, I see the benefits of the zakah in work and they see the benefits of zakah in terms of being its recipients. So this is something which is amazing about our religion. But despite this, people still can't give 2.5% once a year. Not every month like normal tax on our income, not something which you have to do uh, you know, every week or whatever. No, it is basically 2.5%. And it's not even on everything that you own. It is only upon what you have after you've given out your expenses. So once you've spent whatever you need to spend, and by the way, that would, even in our situation, it includes even the tax that we give. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't say that you have to pay your 2.5% on all that you earn before you have to spend on your family or you have to pay your bills or anything else. It is basically what is left after you've given all of that stuff. That 2.5% is something which is extremely small. But why then can't the vast or many Muslims pay that? Because of this. al mala Jamma. It is this excessive love for wealth and there is a logical part to this because clearly wealth opens up doors and it allows you to have certain things and gives you and affords to you certain things that otherwise you couldn't have but there is a danger because that line is extremely fine where a person then falls into coveting wealth and they start to fall into haram or they start to acquire that wealth in ways that are haram or they spend it in ways that are haram or it leads to characteristics and attributes within them that are haram and so on and so forth. And so this is why we have uh, this amazing verse in the Quran here that tells us and warns us about doing this. So Ibn Abbas said that the word jamma means shadeedah, that you have an extreme love for wealth and something similar was said by Qatada and it is from that 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 Imam al-Bukhari Muhammad ibn Ismail, he said that the word jammah means al-kathir, it is to want it a great deal. So you have an, a a great love, right? A great love for for wealth, and therefore you want to covet or you want to attain as much of it as possible, mm-hmm. and that is why Imam Al-Qurtubi, uh, rahimahullah Taala, he said, "A kathiran huban means that you want a great deal of wealth, halaluhu wa haramu. It's halal and it's haram, and that's an important caveat here. Uh, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah Taala, mentions something very similar. He says, "A kathiran." It means a great deal. زَادَ Meaning a great deal that is unbecoming or a great deal that is corruptive. And that's because wealth is halal if it is earned in a halal way. And for someone to have a great deal of wealth that is earned in a halal way, Allah Azzawajal blessed you, you're a millionaire, you're a billionaire. It's halal in our religion. And as we mentioned before and we all know, there were numerous companions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who were people of wealth and people that Allah had given to them wealth and after them in, in the subsequent generations of Muslims amongst the great scholars of Islam الله, and many other Muslims and even in our time it is still the case that there are many Muslims that Allah has given to them a great deal of wealth. Therefore, the problem isn't having wealth that you earn in a halal way that you spend in a halal way. You give your zakah, you give sadaqa, you help people around out in your family and so on and you still have millions left in your bank account. There is nothing haram in having that. And you want to save that or you want to keep that for your family as inheritance and so on, there is nothing haram. Even though it is obviously better to spend as much as you can in terms of sadaqah and giving because you're building your akhirah. But in terms of doing what Allah Azza wa Jalla is obligated and not doing much more, that is something which we know is something which is halal because of those ahadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in which the Prophet said that as long as you do the minimum as we know, then you enter into Jannah. However, if that is the case, then those, those people are fine in terms of uh, in terms of not being having that strong attachment to wealth. Because the wealth is not controlling them. They have not become subservient to the wealth. Because when the right of Allah comes upon them, they give it. And when the rights of others come upon them, they give it to them as well. And that is why the Prophet told us the hadith that is in a tirmidhi it's a beautiful hadith when the Prophet SAW said There are four types of people in this world. The best of them and the first of them that he mentioned وسلم, is the one to whom Allah taala has given to them knowledge and wealth. Knowledge of the religion and wealth. So they have the best of their deen, their religion and the best of the dunya, this world. And because the Prophet ﷺ said because they can combine between the two they realize Allah's rights and they realize the rights of others. So they spend in the way of Allah and they give to their family and they bring their ties of kinship closer to them because we know unfortunately in too many cases people that have a great deal of wealth, what happens, your family starts to fight over it. Someone passes away, there's land, there's property, there's inheritance that is has to be distributed and because people don't have that fear of Allah جل, and don't know the rulings of the Sharia in terms of inheritance, we now start to fight. No, but I should get that. No, I'm older. No, you're younger. No, he gave it to me. No, he said this. No, she said that. And so it becomes a problem or a point of contention. And for many of us, as we know, in our families, there are there are people who, for example, and this is across all cultures, whether you're from the Indian subcontinent, whether you're Arab, whether you're Somali, whether wherever you are. I have heard of instances in all of these cultures where people will say that I don't speak to my uncle or my father doesn't speak to his brother or my parents don't speak to their, uh, their parents, my grandparents, because... Of some land dispute or some property dispute or he got more inheritance than she got or whatever it may be and the problem is that that there is twofold number one is clearly because there is people not following the sharia and its laws and so on but number two there is someone in the equation someone involved that has this issue here that we are mentioning in verse number 20 in suratul fajr and that is why Ibn Kathir said that some of the scholars of Tafsir described this excessive love as fahish, as corruptive, as something which is evil. It is something which corrupts you because your love now for wealth trumps those things which are more important. Because if you look at the Sharia, what is more virtuous in our religion? Is it virtue in terms of having wealth and gaining more wealth? Or is it more virtuous to honor your parents, to join the ties of kinship, to make silatul rahim? Which of those is mentioned more in the Quran and the Sunnah? Which has more rewards? Which is the one that is emphasized more? It is always the way that you ha- act with people and your good character and the way that you honor especially those people who have the most right upon you like your parents and your close relatives. But what wealth does, that excessive love, is it corrupts what we should be doing instead. Our priorities shift and change. And because that happens, it leads to a great deal of evil. Uh, and by the way, that reminds me, inshallah ta'ala, will mention this at the end uh, when we come to the announcements, one of the books that we will be studying this weekend in our next al isnad course is the book of Imam al-Bukhari, the short book, the short work that he did rahimullah ta'ala, on Birul Walidin, which is on honouring the parents, and actually it's more than honouring the parents, it's, it's speaking generally about um, about Silatul Rahim and about honouring your family ties and so on. And it is amazing because as we will see, Imam al-Bukhari mentions the, the one on a hadith about these topics and then he mentions a number of a hadith. Uh, that seem to have no impact at all to the subject. They don't seem to be tied in any way, shape or form to the topic that he's speaking about. But there are a number of scholars who who deduced from them principles that are important to this topic as well and inshallah ta'ala we will discuss that. It's just something which came to mind because it's very relevant to these verses that we are speaking about. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala therefore speaks about these groups of people. Imam al-Tabari uh, rahimahullah ta'ala he said that in this verse Allah is saying what oh people you love wealth so much and your love for it is so severe that it is something which therefore corrupts you and that is what Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala he said the meaning of hubban is is a, is a it is an excessive love love is fine but there is always a limit and a, a, a limit of love after which you cannot go beyond there are certain limits to the love that we have. So if you go to a love or you have a love in a way that is not uh, tempered by the Sharia, it has not been uh, dictated to by the Sharia, the Sharia's rules and its guidelines and its principles have not been placed therein, then you fall into mistakes and you fall into problems. So for example, those people who love the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which is a clear principle and tenet of our Iman and our religion, but if you go overboard in that love and you raise the station the station of the Prophet over and above what Allah gave to him, that's where you fall into problems. It is love, but it is excessive love that isn't belonging or befitting for that station of the Prophet The companions likewise. Right, the problems where some of the people went in overboard with some of the companions like Ali and Fatima and Al-Hasan and Hussain and they went to extremes in their love. And some of them went to a, a very, uh, very harsh or very far extreme in terms of the way that they put them on a pedestal. These companions of the Prophet Wasallam, by virtue of them being members of the household of the Prophet that is problematic because again it is a love that is excessive. So to understand wealth and its cl- clear position in our religion, its need, its benefit, how the sh- the Sharia. Actively encourages you to earn for your for your family to have an income to not be the one who needs to ask others for help financially or to beg or to seek assistance, but rather to be in the position to give that assistance to others. And that is the beauty, uh, you know. If you if you look at these hadith, they are amazing, because the Prophet said, "Al-yadul khirum min al The hand that gives is better than the hand that receives. Most of us have understood that to mean don't be the one that receives. But we forgot the one before, the, the first part of the hadith, which is be the hand that gives. We don't give and we don't receive. And the hadith doesn't speak about either of that person. That person that's in the middle isn't even referred to the hadith. They're completely ignored. Don't give and don't receive. The Prophet ﷺ said, be the one that gives, not the one that has to receive. So that means that you play an active role in terms of having an income for your family, being in that position of comfort so that you can be the one that gives because by being the one that gives, it is something which gives you a greater uh, station in the sight of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And that's why Ibn Ashur uh, continues and he says, it is an excessive love and that is the excessive type or the love of wealth that is disliked or that is frowned upon in the Sharia because there is a love that makes a person so eager to attain that wealth that they will attain it even if it means doing that which is haram. So for example, they're taking people's property, they're stealing, they're cheating, they're taking and devouring people's trusts that they've been given and so on, all of those things. People are doing them. Why? Because that wealth and that love and that subservience to it and what it means and the status that it affords is more important to them than their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they're standing before Him on Al Qiyamah and therefore observing what Allah has made halal and what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made haram. In verse number 21 then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then continues and He says, Kalla. So just as before Allah said Kalla, again Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dismisses the way that these people behave. So these last four verses, the one that we just took today and the three previous ones that we took last week, and that is the you know they don't feed, or they don't, uh, they don't, um, they don't honor the orphan. They don't feed the poor. They don't encourage the feeding of the poor. They don't. They devour people's inheritance unjustly, and they have this excessive love that corrupts for wealth. Allah Azza wa says, "Kalla," meaning none of this will benefit them. What they think they amass actually is not of benefit to them. It gives them no goodness and it gives them no benefit. Kalla ardu no, indeed, when the earth is pounded to dust, pounded and pounded. That is the translation of um, Professor Abdul Harim. Sahih International. When the earth has been leveled, pounded and crushed, uh, Mufti Taqi, No, when the earth, no, when the earth will be crushed thoroughly to be turned into bits, and Muhsin Khan. Nay, when the earth is ground to powder. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this, in this verse begins by the word kalla and as we mentioned before, kalla is to negate something. The la in, in, in the name alif as we know means no and the kaf before it is to negate. It is to draw attention to something as being false or not being the reality or the correct way that that reality should be understood. So as the Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala says here, he says kalla ay ma haakadha yanbaghi an al amr. Meaning that the affair that you think isn't the way that you think it should be. Your assessment of wealth and how you should take people and what the what you think is the standard of success or, or ambition or whatever it may be, it is not the way that you think. So this is, as Imam al Taala continues, he says, and so this shows to them or this shows to us rather the level of these people in the dunya is very low. And what they do is extremely lowly. And so whoever does this, they will feel uh, they will feel remorse and regret on the day that the earth is turned to dust and pounded. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kalla, they will regret this. It is not the way that it is. It is not the way that it should be. What they consider to be correct is not correct. But when will that reality necessarily be known? Not necessarily in this life, not necessarily today or tomorrow. Maybe a lot of those people and millions of those people have and they will continue to believe in that way because of their lack of iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, their lack of belief and Yawm Al-Qiyamah. But Allah says soon a day will come when that regret and that remorse will show itself. Soon they will know it's a true reality and that will often be or that will be on the day if it is not in this life, then it will be on the day of, of, of judgment on Yomul Qiyamah. And Imam Al tabari he said something very similar. He said, Kalla means that it shouldn't be the way or is, the affair is not as they think it should be. And then Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala mentions that they will suffer regret for the evil that they did and the, and the bad deeds that they accumulated in this world and they will find that regret when they find that everything that they collected, everything that they gathered will not benefit them. So people that amass all of this wealth and amass everything by haram and so on and don't think that there will be any accounting or don't really believe in that accounting or maybe they do believe in that accounting but because of their warped understanding of how these things work, they maybe they think that Allah will just forgive them, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala won't punish them, that maybe Allah Azza wa Jal, and so because of that understanding, they are left with that belief or that that, that incorrect uh, expectation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's possible that Allah Azza wa Jal forgives. It's possible that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may do good towards them. But that will always be whilst giving back to others the rights of what they give, or of what, or what was taken from them. So remember that even if Allah Azza wa Jal chose for his wisdom, subhanahu wa ta'ala, to forgive someone and to pardon them, maybe towards the end of their life they made tawbah. Maybe they did something great or they did something extremely beneficial for others, but they had a lot of dhulm and, and oppression as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always write that first before Allah azza wa jal forgives if he so chooses to do so, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala, he makes a, a beautiful point here. He says, this verse, verse number 21, kelda it's as if Allah Azzawajal has now moved It's as if Allah Azzawajal has now started a new passage in this surah and that is that after warning them of the punishment that will come to them in this life because of their disbelief and their oppression and their transgression and where is that taken from? The, the, the punishment of this life is the one that was mentioned in verses 6 onwards when Allah Azzawajal said Do you not see what your Lord did to the people of Ad? So the people of Ad, the people of Thamud, the people of Pharaoh that is, warning of punishment in this life. He says, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala moves from that particular context al-akhirah to the context of warning those people of the threat of punishment in the next life. Because if these people uh, don't pay any heed to what took place to those who came before them, the nations that passed before them, and they don't pay any heed to that, they know that Allah azza wa jal will delay their punishment from this dunya, and they will see even if it is delayed, their punishment is delayed in this dunya, they will have a time or they will come upon them a time from which there is no escape and that is waiting for them and that is the time of the punishment of yomul Qiyamah. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Ibn Ashur ta'ala is saying that Allah Azzawajal here is saying that those people, if they don't pay heed to those verses at the beginning of this surah, they don't look at the nations, the likes of Ad and Thamud and Pharaoh, they don't take heed from the lessons, that Allah gives to us about those past nations, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says no, that there is always a punishment that will come in the next life. Just because you're not punished in this life, doesn't mean you escape the punishment of the grave and the punishment of the next life. So for example, for our Ummah, we know that the Prophet told us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala won't punish us all in a single destruction, that Allah will not destroy the Ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu in the way that Ad and Thamud and the people of Pharaoh were destroyed. Not a single catastrophe will come that will just wipe out this Ummah and this whole nation. That is one of the duas that the Prophet Sallallahu made to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and it is one of the duas that Allah granted to the Prophet Sallallahu So therefore for people who are Muslims, but they commit this type of oppression and they harm others and they steal from their wealth and they do other things, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if they are not punished in this life, they escape that punishment. Allah azza wa jal says here that their punishment will be waiting on a day that should cast uh, fear and terror into their hearts. And that is why this, this verse is expressed in this way. "Kalla idha dukkatil Nay, when the earth is pounded, when it is turned to dust, that when, either shows that a time will come. Not now, but a time will come. If not now, than when Yawm Al-Qiyamah strikes. And so that is a warning to those people that that time will surely come. And so Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is showing here by and the description that is given of Yawm Al-Qiyamah as is often the, the, the case in the, in the book of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is one that strikes fear and terror into the hearts because Allah describes some of the terrifying events that will take place on the Day of Judgment. And Imam Al tabari rahimahullah Ta'ala Says either or said either in the tafsir of that verse. He said, زلزلة زلزلة التحريك التحريك. and he said, and this is the position of the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir. This uh, verse either ard when the earth will, will quake, when it will shake, when it will be pounded. This is the meaning. And we mentioned uh, something about the earthquake of that will strike uh, the earth and how when Yom Al-Qiyamah strikes and how the earth will turn to dust and everything upon it and so on. We mentioned that in some detail when we did the tafsir of Surah Al-Zalzala. And Imam Al tabari is essentially making tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. He says, "Dakkan dakka dakkan dakka," is very similar in meaning to, إِذَا And so it will be shaken and shaken. And it will be pounded and pounded until it is extremely, uh, it, it is turned into dust. And Imam al-Qurtubi uh, rahim Allah Ta'ala said in his tafsir, The word dak means al-kasru wa-dak. It is to break and it is to pound. And that is why flour in Arabic is called daqiq. And so it is something which has been broken down and pounded. And so when you have, for example, barley or wheat or whatever it may be, and you pound it and turn into into flour or into dust, that is called Daqeeq in the Arabic language. And it is from that word that a minute is called daqiqa. It is called daqiqa as far as I am aware and Allah knows best because it is taken from an hour. An hour is a portion of time. It is broken down into minutes. And so a single minute is called daqiqa because it is broken down. And so the earth will be broken down, meaning in terms of its oceans, in terms of its mountains, in terms of its trees, in terms of the stars and the moon and so on. All of this will be changed. And because of it, the earth will become extremely, it will, it will become flat. Yet it will become uh, flat as if there is nothing, uh, the, you know, there is no, as we mentioned before, there are no mountains, there are no peaks, there are no different types of sizes or lengths or heights upon the face of the earth. Uh, and, and then he says, Al uh, Qurtubi says something very similar to Imam Al Tabari, and that is that the earth will shake and it will quake and it will be pounded and pounded and it will be changed and changed. Um, and this is the position of a number of the scholars of Arabic language who, who made tafsir of the uh, peculiar or unfamiliar words of the Quran, the gharib al Quran. So, for example, Ibn Qutaybah said, Dukkat means that what will be pounded is everything that has, like the mountains and the hills, everything will be made flat. And as the judge, another scholar, linguist of the Quran, said, It will be shaken and as it shakes, parts of it will strike other parts and they will pound together and they will be made into dust. And Al-Mubarid said something very similar, that the earth will be extremely flat and everything that was a peak or a trough Anything that was high or low, it will be made completely flat. And a shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shinqiti rahimahullah ta'ala, said something very similar. Also he said, it is similar to uh, what Allah mentioned in Suratul haqqa because in Al-Haqqa he says, Allah mentioned something very similar also after mentioning the stories of Thamud and Ad and Pharaoh. So in al Haqa, Allah speaks about the people of Thamud, the people of Ad, the people of Pharaoh and then he says after mentioning them for either فِي السُّورِ نَفْخَةٌ واحدة. And then when the single blow of the trumpet is made And the earth and the mountains are carried dukkata, دَكَّةً And they are struck in a single blow Meaning that they are flattened in a single blow The repetition of the word here دكن دَكَّا Al-Qurtubi says that it means مَرَّةً Ba'da مَرَّةً Means time and time again, and that's why I think uh, perhaps Professor Abdul Halim, in his, in his uh, translation of this verse, he said pounded and pounded, meaning that it is done over and over again until there is nothing left. Uh, he continues and he says, and so parts of it will break other parts until there is nothing left upon its face, meaning trees, mountains, as we mentioned before, all of it will be removed and the earth will become extremely flat. Uh, um, and some of them said that it's referring to the earth becoming flat so it will be as if it is like a rug or a carpet or a single flat uh, space and that is also the word the meaning of the word uh, deck so deck and duck are very similar in terms of their meaning but from the meanings of the word or from the words that are taken from the word deck is the word dukan, dukkhan uh, in, in modern Arabic language and we mentioned this in our first Isnad course because it came up in one of the books that we were reading uh, last month. The word uh, Dukkan in, in modern day Arabic is often used to refer to as a shop like it's also in other languages such as Uldu and so on. Dukkan means a shop or a store. Uh, however, in, in classical Arabic language and this word is actually mentioned in a in, in hadith in, in Surah Nabi Dawood and other than Surah Dawud Dawood where the Prophet Sallallahu the companions say that the Prophet in the masjid would sit with us on the ground. And so sometimes a person would come in and he wouldn't be able to differentiate between who from amongst us was the Messenger of Allah So sometimes they would have to ask or sometimes they would end up asking the question to the wrong person until they were pointed to the Prophet So the companion said, Oh Messenger of Allah, why don't you take a dukkan that you can sit upon, that the people may come and see you and talk to you so that, they w- that you will be recognisable. And that is a duqan meaning a stool. And so Al-Qurtubi said that the word dakkan, by the way, that is the, the asal or the principle of the teacher sitting on the chair and the students sitting on the on, the, on the floor. As you see seen many masjid where the teacher sitting on a chair and uh, people around him are sitting on the floor in the masjid. Uh, you know, that's something which is which is still very common in our masajid. That's where the that asal comes from. That's where that principle comes from. So the Prophet ﷺ did so so the word dukkan means something which is flat it is called a dukkan because the stool is flat from the top it is it is flat and so it is called a dukkan and that word is a classical arabic word so as you know we know before from before that there are words that have its uh, usage in modern arabic but it doesn't necessarily mean that its usage in classical arabic is the same and that's why one of the mistakes unfortunately that people make when they come to try to translate this without having any understanding of arabic or going back to the books of the scholars in terms of the explanation to this hadith, they may translate this this as saying, so the Prophet ﷺ took a shop and it doesn't make sense to them. Like the book that we, were, uh, that we were speaking about, Khatib al-Baghdadi, when he speaks about the efforts to which a student of knowledge has to go to in order to become a student of knowledge, he says that you can't be a true student of knowledge until until you close your dukan. And so what people took from that, or many translators took from that in English language, means that you close your shop. And it doesn't mean that because not everyone has a shop to close, not everyone's in business and often this is being referred to in the context of young people because students of knowledge often begin from a young age, they don't have any business to, to close. What it means is, is he puts away his stool, he closes his stool, meaning that he's not a person who's sociable, he's not wasting his time meeting people, chilling out, going out with people, until you do that, you won't find that level of of, uh, of being a serious student of knowledge because your time is preoccupied in other things which are less important. So anyway, that was a slight tangent uh, to what we we're speaking about, but it's an important principle to remember when it comes to especially the Quran and especially the hadith of the Prophet And so often when there are words that don't seem to make sense, rather than just simply assuming, right, which unfortunately, uh, people do when it comes to translations, they just simply make an assumption that a dhukar is a shop, so it must it must be a shop and then they try to like kind of make it fit into some type of context or make some type of sense out of it. It would have been better to understand or to go back to the books that explain the hadith, to understand what it's referring to and this isn't everyone by the way, I don't want to paint everyone in the same bush, uh, there are alhamdulillah plenty of translators who do a good job and they do their due diligence and work but it shows to you the level of work that you have to go to as a translator. So. You know we should always uh, show a great amount of gratitude and and, and, uh, and respect to those people who dedicate a great portion of their time to to translating the classical works of our religion into a language that we can understand or into a context that we can understand. Because if you were to literally go to a hadith and think, okay, look, I don't know the meaning of the hadith, I need to go back to two, three, four different books, explanations in order to understand that, and then you have to do that, you know, for like a number of a hadith. And, and then it's a book like, you know, a book like Riyadh Salihin or a book of, of hadith like Suran Abi Dawood. It's a great deal of effort and work that, that takes years of work before you have a standard that inshallah ta'ala is a good standard and of a good quality. And one of the, you know, one of the things that I've, I've seen uh, in, this, in this way also is people just becoming confused, for example, between words which they're reading out of context, which if they were to think and stop and pause, wouldn't make any sense. So for example, the word Abi, Abi, which means my father, Right, Ab is father, Abi, my father, and the word Ubay, which is the name of a person, like Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiyallahu anhu. ubay is a name, Abi is my father. But both of them are spelled exactly the same. And as we know, in many classical Arabic works, they wouldn't have the harakat. they don't put tashki, they don't put the fatha, dhamma, kasra. And so the Arabs knew how to read this stuff because they also, they used to look at the way that it makes sense. And I've come across translations where they have mixed up Abi with Ubay. So it's referring to, for example, the companion Ubay ibn Ka'am an, and he said that my father said. Because that's what he thinks that the narrator is saying my father said. he's not speaking about his father, he's speaking about the companion. All the opposite. That he's saying that I heard in the chain of narrators my father said to me and he says Ubay narrated. Not obey he saying my father said to me I heard from my father who narrated from another narrator so these are just examples that I wanted to uh, to point out um, uh, because it's something which uh, you know which we have to be extremely uh, diligent about and it's something which is going to connect with uh, with one of the points that we're going to make at the end because one of the questions I asked last week if you remember is maybe if we need to or if you think we should change the format of this class in terms of reading classical texts and so on um, so anyway, we'll come on to the inshallah ta'ala while let's just finish the tafsir of this verse. So that was what Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, said. Ibn Ashur uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, said something very similar as well. Uh, Ibn Ashur said in his tafsir that the reason why there's a repetition of dakkan dakkah, which is to show that it happens time and time again that this will be something which won't be just a single pounding or it won't be for example uh, it won't be something which will, will leave For example, some mountains, take other mountains, it is something which will completely flatten the earth. He says, because this this is something which the Arabs wouldn't have been familiar with. Or this concept, forget the Arabs, anyone would have been familiar with. That a time will come when the earth will be flat, no mountains upon it, no trees, nothing. That it will be completely flat. And because it is something which is, in a way, outside of the norm, it is something which is outside of what is the usual way that we understand and see the earth, and it is the first time Ibn Ashur says that it's being referred to in the Qur'an. Surat al-Fajr is the first time in terms of chronological order that it was referred to in terms of revelation. It was the first time that it was referred to in the Qur'an. That is why Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions it twice here. As opposed to in Surat al as we mentioned where it's mentioned only once for dukkata, dakkatan Wahida. It's like a single blow. And there is no difference between the two because here Allah is referring to it time after time, meaning that it will be pounded. And there, Allah is referring to it as an overview that it is a like it has been done in a single blow, and Allah knows best. And he said, another scholar said that it means that it will continue to happen over and over and over again. So it's not just a single, uh, it's not a single time. So the first uh, position was, as we said, that it's referring for emphasis. The second one is to show that it's going to happen multiple times, just as you say, قراءة الكتابة and baba. I read this book chapter by chapter meaning I read every single chapter. So when Allah says dakka dakka it means it will be pounded and pounded and pounded. And he said and this was the position Ibn Ashur said this seems to be the position of the majority of the scholars with tafsir that the repetition is to show repetition. The repetition in the verse is to show repetition in terms of the, uh, the, the the pounding of the earth and its crushing as opposed to it just simply being there for emphasis. And Ibn Kathir Said that the earth will become flat without any mountains and it will be flattened out, and that is when the creation will be taken out from their graves and they will be made to stand before the Lord Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Okay, let me take a a couple of questions I can see here, and then inshallah ta'ala, I have two or three announcements to make. Uh, regarding the meaning of Imad, you mentioned four positions referring to their height physical pillars where they lived. The third position of their body. I wanted to confirm my understanding of the third position for Imad was correct. Uh, the third position is a big building that their ancestors made. This position is linked to what certain scholars said about Iram, or Iram relating to being a place built by their ancestors. So if you go with the tafsir of these scholars, verse 7 will be placed people of Iram which had a big structure that had uh, that had extremely big pillars. Yes, so it's referring to a structure. It is said that they had, and whether it's one structure or multiple structures, Allah Azza wa knows best. But that would be uh, what's being referred to. Uh, is it from a lack of virtue to desire to be wealthy? No, no, not necessarily. If you're, if you're, uh, if your intention is to have wealth for the sake of doing good with that wealth, so your sincere intention, not like just this thing, oh yeah, if I have wealth, I'll give some of it to charity, but really your overriding thing is to is to you know use that wealth in other ways that are excessive and so on, and to show off maybe all other things, no. But to desire wealth so that you are comfortable, your family is safe and comfortable, and to desire that wealth to do good with it, you want to do charitable works, you want to set up a foundation, you want to help people, you want to do something for the Ummah, that's something which is a good intention to have. And even if you don't have it, even if you don't get that wealth, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards you for that sincere intention. And that is when the hadith that I mentioned of about Tirmidhi, where the Prophet speaks about the person of knowledge who has wealth and they use it in the best of ways. The second level is the one who doesn't have wealth but he has knowledge, meaning that they have the sincere intention that, Oh Allah, if I had wealth, I would be like that first person. I would give it to my family. I would help my community. I would help the poor. I would spend it in your way. And part of that also is that then you have, uh, sadaqah for yourself And remember that the Prophet ﷺ said to the man Who was given uh, uh, sadaqa, He said the first thing you do Or was given wealth sorry uh, That was given to me, He said the first thing you should do Is you spend on yourself And then your family And then your relatives And then you spend it in other ways That you need to And so to 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 worry about yourself And your family Is is part of our religion as well But to have a good intention with that wealth Is something which is uh, Something which is good And something which is honorable. inshaAllah ta'ala Okay, I have a few announcements to make or a few points that I just wanted to mention uh, before we conclude for today's lesson. Uh, first of all, as some of you may know, we have our next Lab course this weekend. So again, it will be two full days, Saturday and Sunday, very similar to the way that we conducted our last lessons, readings and commentaries of of two stroke three books. Uh, the first book will be the Forty Hadith of Imam al-Nawawi, uh, but we will also add the 8 extra hadith that Ibn Rajab added to Al-Nawawi's works. Ibn Ibn, Ibn, Ibn uh, Al-Imam Al-Nawawi had 42 hadith in his collection of 40 uh, and then Ibn Rajab explained those 42 hadith and he added 8 that he considered also to be extremely important. So we will inshaAllah ta'ala look at both of those works and look at those principles and so on. And what we're going to do rather than doing a deep dive because again as we know uh, as you know, the, the methodology that we have in al isnad is reading and commentary like our uh, Ramadan Tafsir kind of style. So rather than going through a deep uh, dive through every hadith because each one would take a long time, what we're focusing on is that Imam al-Nawi, when he authored his book, said that each of these 42 hadith is a principle of our religion and that's why I chose them. From all of the thousands of hadith, he said our religion is contained in these 42 major principles. But m- many times when you read this book or study it, you don't actually find people focusing on the principle. What is the principle? So for example, or the second hadith, the long hadith of Salam and the Prophet spoke about Iman and Islam and Ihsan and so on. What's the principle that we take? What is the one principle that we benefit from it? And so that's something which we're going to be focusing on in terms of looking at the principles that Imam al-Nawi wanted us to focus on. Imam al-Nawi himself didn't state what those principles were, but other scholars came and they extrapolated, deduced and, and made Ijtihad. So that's the first one inshallah ta'ala over this weekend. So that's the second book. The third book that we'll do is, as we said, uh, or as I mentioned earlier, the book of Imam al-Bukhari rahman taala It's like 75 odd narrations, a hadith with chains and texts of uh, hadith to do with honouring your parents and joining the ties of kinship and the principles related to it. Not only is it a nice subject and it's a heart-softening subject and the subject that we need, uh, that's because it's you know something which requires our akhlaq and our character to be bettered. But also because it's something which, uh, you know, for those of you that attended uh, the first one, when we did the book of Abu Khaytham and Knowledge, it's the traditional way of hadith with these chains and so on. And one of our objectives of al Isnad is to get people familiarized with reading chains of narrators and so on. And so, uh, you know, this thing where as students of knowledge, I mean, it's okay, for example, a Nauwi's book doesn't have chains of narrators. It's a a well-known Convention amongst the scholars, but those scholars were people who knew how to read the chains of narrations. And so, for a student of knowledge, someone who's serious about their knowledge, it's okay to read those books and find like not to, you know, not to not to have to worry about chains of narrators. But only if you know what the chain of narrator, narration is and how to read it and how to deal with it and principles relating to it and so on. And so, those are the three books in that we will endeavor to cover. And again, it will be broadcast uh, on the Greenian Masjid YouTube page and so on as well. So. Uh, you can follow it from there uh, and if you're attending live then inshallah taala you get an ijazah as well uh, the second uh, t- the second uh, point that i wanted to make is the next couple of lessons so i am i'm going abroad inshallah taala very soon so um, some of those lessons we may have to change the time of because of the time difference i uh, you know i'd rather not record the lessons we try to do our lessons live as much as possible as much as we can uh, what that does mean though sometimes is because of time difference, it ha- I don't think it's happened to me before but uh, there's always a first time. What we may have to do is for example change the day and the time to make it slightly earlier and obviously it will be the recording will be there for those of you to catch up later just so that we can keep that live element uh, but keep an eye out on the telegram group and so on that inshallah ta'ala will be advertised. As it stands though next week's lesson will be at the same time so next week you don't have to worry about it, but the next couple of lessons. Um, also, just so that everyone's aware, inshallah ta'ala, as we usually do every single year now, this is our fourth year of QP, so it's pretty standard. Our last lesson will be the last Tuesday before the month of Ramadan begins. So, Ramadan is likely to be very early April. So, by the first week of April, uh, Ramadan will have started within the first two or three days or whatever it is. So, that means that the Tuesday before, also the last Tuesday of March, essentially, I don't have the date with me, uh, but that's essentially going to be. The, uh, the last lesson of QP for this year inshallah, ta'ada. so we will Inshallah, finish, finish the Tafseer of Suratul Fajr in the next week or two and the last lesson that we have we may just do a special on one of the things that we usually do specials about so it's yet to be decided uh, Rashid is asking on the books for al not available on the website they should be either today or tomorrow so you don't need to buy the books we're going to give you PDFs for this particular one which you can just uh, print off and use in terms of you know using a notebook so you don't nothing that you need to buy inshallah ta'ala. for this one you can just download the pdfs and print off um okay so that's three done so the fourth uh the, the last thing that i wanted to mention very quickly before we end is i've been looking at the telegram messages for those of you that gave your feedback in terms of Something which I mentioned last week which was should we change the format of these lessons that we read from a book and then commentate and explain that book rather than me just simply reading and there seem to be uh, differences but the general consensus was that we like the depth that we're doing. We like the depth that we have. Should we read a book and continue with that depth or should we just keep it the way that we are? That seems to be the um, you know the, where, where people have different views. That discussion is still open. Please keep uh, giving us your positions and your opinions and so on. However, one thing that I did want to mention is that the reading, if we are going to do a reading, would be from something that has been translated, like a Sadi, or like al jalaleen or you know, if someone knows of another complete tafsir that's been translated from the classical tafsir, from the classical works of tafsir, it would be one of those. The reason why, and many of you like the idea of Tabari, and I love to read a Tabari. Like a Tabari is one of the main, as you know, those of you that have attended know that I'm always quoting from a Tabari. And I think it's a shame that people in our time have neglected the al-Tabari and very few people uh, read al-Tabari uh, or they just consider it to be like a reference thing where you just go back to or something you don't really read. The issue with that is, number one, I think the reading would actually take a long time. For us to read and to translate as we're going along will take a great deal of time. There's no translation of al-Tabari available. For someone to do a translation would take an extremely long time. And Because the Tabari lived in the fourth century of Islam, he died in like 320, whatever it was, or whenever he, he passed away, ta'ala. his Arabic is also very classical. And just like the examples that I gave of the word Dukkan, and Abi, and Ubay, and all of those, you need someone who is familiar and very, you know, very uh, familiar with Tafsir al Tabari to even try to attempt to do such a work. It would be amazing to do so, but the amount of time. And effort and dedication would take literally means that someone would have to give up probably a lot of the stuff that we're doing. Myself, I don't have the time and capacity, unfortunately, to do that because of Isnad and other projects and so on. It's difficult for me to, uh, you know, for me to be able to to dedicate something like a Tabari. And to just read in Arabic and assume that people will understand also, I don't think is a good idea because I think there's a lot of people that would probably struggle with the Arabic. Even people who have uh, a general understanding of Arabic would probably struggle with the Arabic of a Tabari unless they're familiar with his style. And, and, and the way that he speaks and, and the narrations and so on. So, for those of you that are interested in like using the book option, it would have to be something that we can relatively easily do. And uh, I don't think it's good to make a comparison, for example, with what Sheikh Abu Isa is doing on LP, because Sheikh Abu Isa just does a, a, a translation of, of the book of Azad. And Azad is a small book. He doesn't do the translation, from what I understand, of Sheikh Ibn Al-Taymin's commentary. He just does that as he goes along himself. The written book, though, of Azad is very short and he just does like a paragraph here and there, and that's like basically you know going to take him probably months to get through anyway. Al Tabari is like 35 odd volumes, so for us to read and to do a translation, like the comparison is very different. Uh, Al Tabari is a completely different type of work to something like Azad. Azad is written to be small and easily digestible and understandable, and you know, I, I have Azad right in front of me because it's a book that I uh, that I often refer to and read and go back to in terms of fiqh this is this is the length of a zad. a zad is like a small book if i was to show you a tabari that i have over there like the 30 odd volumes each one extremely thick it's a completely different thing so it would have to be an english uh book that we're going to use if not or if you think that's not a good idea or most people don't like that idea because you think that it might take away from the depth and so on and you know some of you made a very good point and that is that you know we have the ramadan tafsir which is where we get to do our quick tafsir and we finish the quran in relatively easy inshallah ta'ala and quick time and that gives you the understanding and we have inshallah ta'ala a couple of other tafsir projects that I'm planning uh, some of them with Greenland Masjid and so on that will also inshallah ta'ala enhance our understanding of tafsir in different ways at different levels you know then we can just kind of keep to the way that we're doing and, and we keep to that depth so I just like to consult you because I think you know as students you have a right to be consulted and a right to give your opinion and clearly because of COVID and so on, because everything's online now, it's not like I have people in the masjid that I can ask, so I need to revert to you. So please continue to give your feedback and your opinions. Um, as much as the idea of the proposed changes to QP sounds nice, I think the current format is as they are. Yeah, so again, I, you know, I'm happy to continue to do that in, in some ways it is easier for me. Because what I have to do, you know, the amount of effort that it takes me to do the tafsir classes in Ramadan of a Sa'di in Jalalain takes a great deal of time because not only am I referring to the source material, I have to compare the source material to the English translation because there might be errors or there might be things that are missed out. So, for example, those of you that attended the Sa'di last year will know that we pointed out that there are, there are different editions of a Sa'di and the translation that we have of the English isn't of the best edition of the Sa'di that is available in Arabic. And so there's things that are missed out and all of that stuff. So, that's something which Takes a great deal of time as well, so that does also add to you know it's not easier for me to just use the English. It's not because it's easier for me. It's actually more work for me to use an English translation uh, rather than just doing my own research and, and coming up with my own uh, notes. But anyway, Inshallah Taala, let me know. Taala. Um, okay, so let us uh, let's conclude here today, Inshallah Taala, and hopefully Taala. Next week we will continue with the Tafsir of Surah al-Fajr. Jazakumullahu khairan. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه اجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته